Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite new innovations to help you do just that, take control of your health, especially if you're elderly, because I don't know of any intervention that will improve your health so dramatically. And uh, that intervention is something called uh, generically blood flow restriction training or BFR for short. And today we have Dr. Mario Novo, who is a uh, uh, really one of the teachers in this with a sort of an alternate set of that, which is a form of blood flow restriction training, but we're going to get into that as we discuss it. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I think we all are on this one journey and, uh, you know, I will, I will get to uh, have uh, an experience of getting older with BFR, I think coming in on the front end. Uh, mm -hmm. of my own life and it being a part of my own journey, but it is, uh, it's a privilege to be able to share this with your audience. So I look forward to the talk. Yeah, it's just amazing. So let me just give a little background for those who haven't learned about it and just be brief and then we'll go into what your experience with it is. But blood, the generic uh, term for blood flow restriction training uh, was really evolved from uh, uh, Dr. Sato, S-A-T-O in Japan. And he, he, Figure this thing out in the 1966, so over 50 years ago. He's 73 years old now. He's ripped for a 73-year-old. His mm -hmm. arms are probably the size of many people watching this as legs. Uh, so he's a really strong testament to the fact that it works. But it's not just for strength building. We wouldn't be here discussing this if it was just for strength training. That is just a minor characteristic. It metabolically will radically improve your health, and it will radically decrease your risk for developing sarcopenia and mm -hmm. most all of the age-related diseases. So anyway, so he developed Katsu, K-A-A-T-S-U, -A -A which is a mm -hmm. Japanese term for two words. It means additional pressure. And if you've ever looked at a Katsu, you know, you know that is the perfect, absolutely perfect name for this because exactly what the Katsu devices do. They have a band that's inflatable and they provide additional pressure. Now, the, this really wasn't brought to the United States. Mara, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is until the 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, 2010, this decade. So it's less than 10 years old, less than 10 years old in this country. And I actually did an interview uh, with, the, with the person who was responsible for uh, bringing this technology to this country from Dr. Sato directly. It took, him, it took him 13 years before Sato agreed to finally put it into the U.S. So since then, I mean, it's, that's not a long time, 10 years. So there's, there's been a pretty radical uh, adoption of this. Mm -hmm. And your training is a, is a physical therapist. You're a doctor of physical therapy, uh, which I think most, just like pharmacists, I think most PTs and most pharmacists now that have graduated for the last 10, 15 years are, are you have to get a PhD. I mean, you didn't, that didn't used to be that way, but I think it is now. Uh, so, 
And you, you, why don't you, so that's your background, that's the background of Katsu and BFR, and I want you to describe your evolution of this, how you encountered it, and you know, you, what you've done, well, maybe a description of what you've done to it so far. We're gonna go dive deep into it, because I've talked with you previously on the phone, and I know you know the physiologist, so I'm really excited for this discussion. Yeah, so uh, my background as a, uh, as, as a physical therapist, um, I at this point have about uh, 12 years of experience in the world of rehab. And uh, as most people that have ever experienced rehab uh, know, uh, when you're in rehab, there is a huge recommendation and often with very good reason for you to use very light loads. Uh, this could be after you know, post-injury, uh, post-surgery, post-fracture, when if you were going to exercise with heavier weights, this might place you know, healing tissue um, at, at a greater risk. So there is very much a, a dose dependence that means how heavy we load, and it may increase the risk. So in the world of physical therapy, we've always relied on light load training. And a lot of the education that we were provided, you know, in our schooling um, was kind of, uh, I would say, a little divorced from some of the education that was coming out of the world of exercise physiology, which was showing us that if we're really aiming to improve by definition strength, your ability to produce force, uh, we really need to be training at higher loads. And this became very problematic in the world of PT because we really can't. Um, so the uh, San Antonio Military Medical Center um, uh, has a facility called Center for the Intrepid, CFI. And in that facility uh, was a gentleman who was uh, one of my mentors, Johnny Owens, who at the time uh, was uh, basically tasked uh, with understanding uh, how to operate within a department known as limb salvage. So uh, he was in a similar environment of rehab, but his patients were in a very critical state where if they weren't cared for and cared for appropriately, they were going to have an amputation. And uh, he had heard about Katsu training and he, he had heard about how these light loads, these low, you know, low intensity exercises being used uh, to increase his muscle mass, and at the time, they were having trouble uh, with certain drugs on the market to reduce the amount of scar tissue, uh, which would help provide a, a more appropriate environment for collagen, but also for muscle building. Because one thing that we've discovered in this process of, of building bigger muscle is that it's a pathway that is very specific, and it's a pathway that as we get older, we really rely on exercise and nutrition in order to stimulate it. And once it's stimulated, it shuts down a other pathway that's used for making scar tissue. So one would imagine when you're hurt, your body is going to choose a path that provides protein that is not very dynamically uh, or calorically um, expensive to build, hence scar tissue, uh, versus building muscle, which is very you know, expensive to build, and the same, same with collagen to a degree. So at the time, he said, you know what? There's, people are using these bands. Uh, they're increasing muscle size. As a result of them increasing size, they are, by definition, shutting down this scar tissue pathway. Is there maybe a way that we can start applying this in this limb salvage department where the biggest issue we have is scar tissue? We'll, what, what year What year was this? Uh, this is around 2000 and uh, right, right around 2010, 2011. Okay. Okay. Um, so they start experimenting uh, using some tourniquets. And uh, they, they take a little bit deeper dive. 
once they're given excuse me i'm going to interrupt you a few times was it was this a surgical tourniquets that were fda approved for surgery right so so all the all the u.s was your was your mentor the first one that did this or are there others investigators around the country doing it prior to um so he was the first to start going that route um and that's the first that i had seen it being applied in in medicine now prior to that there was already some investigations being done uh, looking at katsu and looking at uh, just standard tourniquets, a knee wrap, for example. But these were being done in the field of exercise physiology, simply to look at was this beneficial for increasing muscle size and muscle strength. It really didn't have any implications in medicine at all. So I had seen it. I had heard about people doing BFR you know, around 2007, 2008. Um, but I didn't really take any further steps of wanting to learn more at that time because, you know, it was just like, ah, oh, you know, they're just wrapping themselves up. No one really seems to be able to explain, you know, mechanistically what's happening. Uh, we don't really know. And, you know, in some cases at that time, the only exposure I had to tourniquet research was very limited. So I did not even understand at that time uh, some of the real benefits that tourniquets play in the medical suite. Uh, especially the post-surgical suite at reducing the formation of a clot as well at, uh, as maintaining blood pressure so that patients don't you know, uh, have an influence of what's known as orthostatic hypotension or you've been laying in the hospital bed for too long, your blood pressure has been uh, depressed for a sufficient amount of time and now when you get up, you get dizzy and that could be a risk in a hospital setting because you could fall, right? Or you can hurt a nurse or hurt you know, another uh, you know, medical provider that's there if you fall and it just increases risk. So beyond that, I had not really known much. Um, so Johnny starts experimenting with this, uh, with these patients. And, uh, what he starts seeing is, you know, there's a lot less scar tissue that's forming mechanistically. We start, we now understand why, uh, we're able to salvage more muscle. We're able to have these, uh, these patients, increasing the amount of muscle that they're contracting. So they are increasing in relative strength comparative to just the light loads that they're lifting. Um, And they were having also dramatic changes in pain. And at the time we really weren't able to explain why they were having less pain. And I mean, some of these people were like, you know, they had pretty severe arthritis in their knee, um, pretty severe arthritis in their hip or in their ankles. um, Cause not all of these limb salvage candidates were fresh. Some of these were chronic cases where, you know, this person's going to the Center for the Intrepid to have potential training for a future uh, uh, amputation. So they're being trained on how to already start using, you know, how to care for themselves, how to, you know, put on a prosthetic. Um, some of them were being treated uh, for, you know, nerve injuries like drop foot after having a gunshot wound or something that, you know, knocked out their tibial nerve. And they were using devices like the IDEO which it has a different name now, but it's, a, it's an exoskeleton device the military created that would allow people with this injury to run, and it worked. So that was my original exposure to it, and very quickly from there, it got taken up by uh, Dr. Uh, Walt Lowe uh, from the, uh, from the so he's, he's one of the orthopedic surgeons working with the Texans, and uh, it, its inception into the NFL blew up after it started to be applied for post-ACL injury, uh, Reconstruction, repair. Um, and when, you know, when was that? What what does time frame that, on that? That that would have been also sometime around like two thousand, uh, probably two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Okay. Um, that starts kind of kicking off and really accelerating two thousand fourteen, two thousand fifteen, 
um, that's kind of where the NFL is now really getting on board. And uh, one of my first just like jaw dropping experiences with it was in 2015 when I had a, a player from the, from the New York Giants uh, who came to see me after having had uh, about 16 weeks of a malunion uh, to a metal device put on his tibia. So he had had a fracture and they attempted to put this, you know, this metal device to help the fracture from not increasing in size. And his body was not grafting or growing onto the, onto the metal device. So this, the screws were loose. Uh, and this obviously is a, is a large risk to him and a, and a lot of pain for the patient. They tried bone stimulators. They tried um, uh, providing different drugs to help uptake, you know, bone mineral, um, you know, nutrition, aquatic therapy, land-based training, um, using you know, something that's called an alter G, which is, a, it looks like a treadmill, but it reduces your body weight. So you can stay active at a lighter impact. Nothing was working for this guy. And, uh, so we said, you know what, let's, let's use some BFR. Um, at that time I, ha- I was certified underneath, uh, Johnny, uh, to start applying a surgical tourniquet. Uh, it was uh, manufactured by a company called Delphi and it's, it's, it's a surgical tourniquet comes right out of the surgical suite. It just has a timer. Um, so that it doesn't, uh, stay on the whole entire time. Like one would have in surgery and what it did for the, the patient was, so one, uh, applying the tourniquet reduces the amount of oxygen available for his legs to continue to keep doing exercise, which means that we can take very light load exercises and have the environment in his muscle look more like if he was doing moderate to higher intensity exercises. Cause when we perform exercise at higher intensities, we consume more oxygen to continue to fuel contraction. But at a given point, our muscles and the process of contracting and using oxygen and using ATP, which is an energy source we all use, will begin to produce byproducts. And these byproducts... Well, well, let's just stop there because I mean, a lot of good information. I just want to insert some information and let you comment on it because what you meant is a really important detail. And and, uh, I think you just might be potentially glossing over it and I, I, I want to go deep on this so the the the, the well I can I can finish the story no, I, okay finish without the, story, the details yeah so end of the story is we apply uh BFR for this gentleman and in four weeks um he grafts onto the piece of metal um and the doctor's like this is fantastic um he went back out uh played for a little while he didn't like the metal plate being in there they took it out we saw him again for another four weeks um, and full, complete closure. Uh, so that kind of started this whole huge boom in now looking at BFR for not just muscle, not mm-hmm. just strength, but also potential benefits for post-fracture. And that spread apart like wildfire, wildfire at this point. So all of the NFL, all of the NBA, all of the MLB, all the NHL, soccer, predominantly here in the U.S. and now in the Europe, all Division I universities and some Division II is now getting on board. They all now have BFR as a modality that's used in physical therapy. And, and as of how are, how are they using it? Is it is a physical therapist that's actually implementing this? Yes, yes. So, uh, so PT or PTA uh, since 2018 of, uh, I think it was like the middle of 2018, the American Physical Therapy Association, um, conducted their own their own investigation and said that BFR is indicated in rehab and is now part of our scope of practice. 
So it's now, it's, it's not a alternative medicine or an alternative modality. It's a modality that is indicated. And we already now have some cases uh, like knee pain uh, that are now, it's predominantly, you search it up. BFR is at, at the top level for addressing individuals with knee pain for various different reasons with OA being a big one. And as you mentioned in your intro, um, now being seen as a, as a tool specifically to address things like osteopenia, sarcopenia, um, and potentially uh, some additional benefits for things like hypertension and diabetes because metabolically what's occurring in the muscle. With some now newer ideas, potentially even looking towards things like traumatic brain injury or post-stroke because of how the byproducts that are formed in our body when we exercise vigorously can be a fuel source for the brain and the heart when they're in periods of trauma. Yeah, and I would definitely want to go into that. But before we do, just a quick question on the fact that I didn't realize it in 2018, last year essentially, that it was approved for this purpose. So I suspect that it's a reimbursable CPT code now? No, not yet. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> yeah, one, one of the issues that happened with that is that, um, so making a CPT code for anybody who's not privy to that knowledge, it just means it's a medical code that we can uh, bill for, and there's a certain dollar amount that's set to it. So traditionally, we've used things like therapeutic exercise, activities, ultrasound, um, you know, uh, e-stim units, and, you know, they thought, you know what? It's a, it's a thing you put around your leg and it provides pressure. And we have something similar to that. Uh, <laughs> these are called vasopneumatic devices and they're typically used postoperatively to reduce inflammation. But the one problem was that a vasopneumatic device code by definition said that your leg would be smaller in size after application. But with BFR, as you know, because there's this, uh, this experience, uh, this observable event that happens where your muscle becomes more engorged with plasma. So it becomes bigger. You get the pump, right? Arnold's going to pump it up, right? That's you get a pump when you perform BFR as you do with exercise, right? Uh, they couldn't use the code. So they're working uh, pretty vigorously to have a CPT code specifically for it. But you have to remember though, that these CPT codes are also tied into licensure and licensure is tied into curriculum. So it's going to still be a little while before it makes its way um, into, into the curriculum and into licensure. And I'm, I'm, my, my mission here locally in Tennessee where I live is to help and push that at my local university, uh, Belmont University, which is where we conduct BFR research. Uh, but we're also doing it in a manner throughout uh, to potentially add into the curriculum some conversations about BFR because we're just learning a lot more about physiology and as physical therapists, it is part of our scope of practice. So we now have a new responsibility to learn this, um, you know, for safety and for outcomes. All right, good. So it's coming. So I, I want to dive deep into the physiology now. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of things going on, but primarily related to the relative hypoxia or lack of oxygen in the exercising limb. Mm -hmm. And and the and you, that to understand the there's so many consequences of that, but the primary one that you alluded to is that uh, to give a little more depth that there's two types of muscle fibers: the type one, the slow endurance type fibers, and the type two, which are the fast twitch fibers, and primarily anaerobic using glucose and not oxygen, and doing basically anaerobic fermentation. 
uh, and does not require oxygen at all. And that's the fiber that, that's actually larger than type one that tends to kick in when the oxygen supply runs out and the type one fibers are just exhausted. And the only thing you have left are type twos. So it's that activation of type two which as a result of anaerobic fermentation generates lactate as a metabolic byproduct from metabolizing pyruvate. And that's what builds up because these bands don't allow the lactate to, to diffuse systemically and get, get diluted. So, and that provides many of the benefits. So that's what I wanted to plug in. And then I, I'm definitely really curious. I understand how, and there's a lot more to discuss here, but I understand how the, this impacts a lot of the strength and hypertrophy benefits, but I'm, I haven't reviewed the literature yet on how that impacts, I, I can guess, but how it impacts the recovery, the rehabilitation, the, the, the bone growth repair. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. So mm-hmm. why don't you take it from there? Sure. So I think in, in general, anytime that, uh, you know, now it's part of our scope of practice, the physical therapist approaches the concept of blood flow restriction. Um, and maybe you just, let's maybe just take it in a general conversation. Um, you know, why, why would blood flow restriction be a benefit to me, right? As, as a human being, why would it be beneficial to me? Um, so for one, as we, as we age, we, uh, we obviously have a, a pretty well-known age curve now. And it shows us that as we age, some tissues like collagen get a little stiffer. Uh, muscle tends to become uh, less uh, capable of utilizing smaller and smaller amounts of nutrition to a degree. Uh, forcing us to potentially have you know more caloric intake of amino acids to offset that, but uh, we also require movement and we require um, intensity. Uh, and the reason being is because our body is a is a, is a very highly adaptive organism that utilizes the environment uh, as as cues to initiate certain processes to occur. So when we do things like exercise, it challenges our bones. Uh, from muscles contracting on top of them. It challenges our muscles and our tendons from strain and stress being placed on them. Um, all of that then also affects our cardiovascular system. So all these, all these systems are tied in with exercise playing a vital role at maintaining them. And uh, as we get older, the maintenance process, or when we're injured, the maintenance process is much harder to achieve. So we have to look at other avenues that we can take because we know that uh, sure, the body does have a capability of bouncing back, but the body is also attached to a very highly executive functioning brain. And if we feel that we are less capable and if we have pain, uh, we are likely going to start to change the way that we think about movement and that how that we think that movement is maybe beneficial for us. And this is where, as a physical therapist uh, and a member of Allied Health and providing you know, education to the public, it's important that people start understanding that there are options available for them uh, that do help to reduce a lot of the potential risks that can be associated with just jumping right into exercise. So blood flow restriction is a very unique type of exercise modality that can be used um, that can provide a lot of benefit when you have to use lightweight exercise Um, and what I mean by that is either I'm not injured, but my joints have gone through a lot and I've began to experience some changes in them, specifically arthritic changes. Um, it could be that I have a joint replacement and now I have a component that doesn't, uh, regenerate. It's just there. And so there's a shelf life on that. Um, it could be, I cannot overly exert my cardiovascular system too high, either because of past medical history 
or current trauma or stress has been done to it. So if I'm forced to be in this low-level world, BFR really makes a big difference. Now, if I'm not forced to be in that low-level world, there are still some other benefits that BFR can apply when strategically mixed in with a general exercise program like how you perform, where you still have moderate to high-intensity sessions, even isometric contractions, which are very beneficial for cardiovascular system, highly beneficial for bones and tendons. So BFR at its, let's kind of start with just its benefits to muscle and kind of go from there. So BFR can benefit muscle tissue by increasing the amount of what we call muscle hypertrophy. And that means uh, essentially at at a very fundamental level, we're increasing the health of the muscle. We're helping the muscle to have to rely on less insulin to allow for uh, energy, carbohydrate, sugar to make its way into the cell uh, that can provide uh, other benefits such as reduced blood, you know, reduced blood glucose levels, reduced blood pressure. Um, and obviously a less reliance on insulin also means less inf- inflammation generally in the body. Um, other benefits that are seen at the level of the muscle um, happen to do with the muscle Um, and its ability to basically become more resistant to forces being placed on it. So as the muscle gets bigger, it doesn't only get bigger in the proteins that contract, but it also gets bigger in the proteins that just provide structural support for the muscle, which just means your muscle gets better at resisting the day-to-day loads you place on it. And uh, it does that through a very particular mechanism of uh, a pathway called mTOR, So mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, and there are various types, but the one specific to muscle, mTOR complex one, is activated when muscles are stressed. So when you stress a muscle, it experiences something called mechanotransduction. It's a fancy word for, I provide a mechanical stress on the muscle, and it provides a chemical signal, right, to itself and to the brain. And as a result, your brain will begin to contract more and more muscle. And what Dr. Mercola was uh, alluding to is that when I, pr- when I do fine motor tasks, like sitting in a chair for balance and writing in my checkbook, I'm not really having to use much higher levels of muscle that would help me if I had to step off of a sidewalk or take a flight of stairs really fast or maybe catch a taxi if I'm missing it. And because muscle is very much trained Uh, to do a task. If I don't do those tasks, I will not get them. I won't get those adaptations. And obviously, as we get a little older, um, and some people, when they retire, they just kind of want to retire to the chair. When they kind of find themselves in that experience, can I move fast? Why am I losing my balance? Why am I, you know, unable to, you know, uh, to, to mow my lawn? There's a lot of changes that are happening. But fundamentally, a lot of them are happening at muscle because muscle is so metabolically active and it requires, you know, a good supply of pretty regular nutrition and a good supply of exercise that if we're not doing these things, we're missing out. So blood flow restriction can help uh, to activate this mTOR pathway that helps to grow more and more muscle. Um, and that again, helps the muscle on a lot of levels, but it has additional benefits for the rest of the body by reducing inflammation, reducing the, you know, the need of insulin to drive energy into a cell um, and then as well, um, you know, have the ability to, um, in general, just make the muscle more healthy, which can lower blood pressure. Okay. Because you're also building more capillary networks as muscle becomes more and more. Well, that's uh, a whole, that, that's stressed. a whole, 
that's a whole other benefit, uh, which isn't really related to mTOR. It's more related to HIF one alpha and VEGF activation. Right, right. That's that's on that's on the side of of hypoxia. Yeah, but, but let's get back to mTOR. So mTOR is activated by the mechanical stressors, mm -hmm. uh, but the 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 paradox of mTOR activation is that it inhibits autophagy, which is the rebuilding and repair of the tissue, typically. Mm -hmm. And the other activation of mTOR is the uh, the consumption of carbohydrates, uh, specifically dextrose or glucose and, and, and uh, branched-chain amino acids like leucine, so, and, which I think are more potent stimulators of mTOR, if I, if I believe so. Maybe you have different information. But the, the paradox occurs because the, the devil's in the details, and it seems that this, this, the, the ultimate or the optimum benefit from performing this exercise, BFR, would be when you're fasting. So you've already got autophagy activated because the literature I've read, reviewed, suggests that autophagy is actually crucial to integrate muscle growth. And if you have defective autophagy or impaired autophagy, it's just not gonna work that well. So I'm wondering how, if you can reconcile this activation of mTOR with autophagy. Well, if, if we consider that, you know, autophagy is, 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 a, is a protective means of better packaging um, you know, proteins, the, the cell operates in a manner that is, again, it's another stress. Autophagy is a, at least how I've viewed it, is a reaction to a stress. And in this case, the stress is I'm in a hypocaloric state. I go into a survival mechanism. My brain has to now become more metabolically flexible with what, you know, what forms of energy it's going to use, most likely still going to use, you know, glucose. Uh, I still have the ability to use lactate and pyruvate and that as well. But um, when we're thinking about, um, there comes a certain point in time because, you know, muscle size does not always directly correlate to strength, mm -hmm. okay? But muscle size can change um, some of our understanding on, on the muscle health side of things. So although, although we do see mTOR become active, um, it is only but one part of, of the benefits we see because the other benefits we essentially see is that you're increasing motor unit recruitment and it's really the recruitment of those high threshold motor units that leads to the strength not necessarily the mTOR activation so the mTOR is just a, a byproduct of what happens due to stress in the muscle and, and, and by far as what I've seen there likely comes a point in time like with any type of exercise where there is plateau where the stress no longer is influencing the same adaptation and there has to be progression um, so it's, it, yeah, it, it is kind of like a, a back and forth with it. We say yeah. autophagy is, is quite helpful, um, and can be promoted through means of caloric restriction. Um, and, and, and exercise too, because exercise right. activates AMPK, which right. activates autophagy, but then you've got, it's also activated mTOR, which inhibits autophagy. You've got this delicate balance between both yeah. of them. Right. And I think that's why when we consider things like, um, yeah, uh, if if we view it in in just a small window of time, you, we would say like, but hold on, these things are these things are counteracting against one another. Um, but after we perform any exercise, what we generally see are these small spurts and increases in muscle protein synthesis or muscle protein building. And if we just looked at in a very simple equation, net protein balance, which is the net amount of muscle breaking and muscle building. And it's essential that we do undergo both of these. You know, hypertrophy is a very specific type of equation we get where building exceeds breaking. Um, but yes, you know, th these things don't happen 
protein synthesis isn't elevated all day long. There are periods of times where it will lull because it has to, because cells have other jobs. They have other means of, of, uh, of, of, you know, let's say properties that help with overall general health and well-being. So I don't, uh, I, I don't tend to look at BFR as something that, um, you know, when we're talking about specifically, you know, the benefits of autophagy, um, I very rarely will bundle those those two things together in that thought process. I, I think you're, you're kind of on a, uh, you're, you're approaching it in a way that's quite fascinating to really think about, um, you know, where you're saying, you know, let's go into a fast state and then perform BFR while we are in that fasted state. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, optimal. Well, I think one thing that, that kind of, um, maybe not so much on the level of autophagy, and that's, that's an area I would be more interested to, to chat about, but I think largely on the level of what's happening, particularly at the brain itself, mm-hmm. while we are in this fasted state, we are freeing up available you know, fat to be able to use mm-hmm. as glucose for the brain. But what we understand about blood flow restriction is that it increases lactic acid by, by a large amount when performed in a vigorous state. And the benefits of lactic acid at the brain is that it can cross the blood-brain barrier. And as a result of doing so, it allows the brain to then preferentially switch its fuel source over to lactic acid or pyruvate, which is bound uh, uh, pyruvate to hydrogen, that is lactic acid. Um, and it stops you, at, you know, using glucose. So glucose can be preserved and, and used for other activities, specifically in the muscle. And what we find is that with BFR, um, you don't necessarily just go into a state of, of type two motor unit recruitment and stay there. What we tend to find is that as that lactate is forming in that limb, um, that lactate can be used in that same muscle and that lactate will readily diffuse back and forth to assist with further oxidative uh, of uh, energy ATP production well, what, in the Krebs cycle. Yeah, let's talk about lactate over a bit because it's really interesting. Normally it's thought of as a waste product, but it's mm-hmm. now become to appreciate as a pseudo hormone. And you're right. When you're, it's a carbohydrate, actually. You consider it's well, pyruvate. It, well, it, yeah, it's a it's a break breakdown product of a carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the brain uh, typically is thought to be functioning on glucose, but K, Tim, uh, not Tim, uh, Cahill uh, out of uh, East Coast, he's since passed. He proved that the, that it can also function on ketones. And when you're fasting, you're metabolically flexible, generating ketones, so that that can supply the brain. But just as you mentioned, the lactate usually through a monocarboxylase transporter gets integrated into the brain and up to 60% of its fuel can come from lactate, which is a massive mm-hmm. benefit, but it yeah. also produces, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's responsible for two other things, which is the uh, induction of a massive increase in growth hormone, which you can mm-hmm. address Correct. and also inhibiting myostatin. Correct. Yeah. So that's where we were having that discussion that, you know, it's, it's inception really into the U S through the military was because of this myostatin mTOR conversation. And for people who don't know, simple way to view this is like a light switch. When you are in a state of uh, injury, uh, your body uh, will shut off the mTOR building pathway, which will allow for something called myostatin uh, to become more active. And myostatin is a member of a large family called the TGF-beta family that is largely linked with the formation of scar tissue, another type of protein, but not metabolically expensive. Ah, did not so, know that it was part of the scar tissue pathway. Right. So in the military, 
They were already experimenting with drugs. One of them was Losartan, and in combination with PRP, to help and address the rate of scar tissue formation. And what they noticed was that when administering Losartan, which is a myostatin inhibitor, they were able to see rates of muscle growth and decreases in scar tissue. The problem, though, was side effects. Mm -hmm. So the next thought was, what else inhibits myostatin? Exercise. And as a result of inhibiting myostatin, it allows for the light switch to go on and allow for mTOR to become active to essentially then aid in muscle building. And again, yes, there are those, you know, that, that's where we look at mTOR complex one, mTOR complex two, you know, their roles with autophagy. We just don't know yet because it is, at least from what I've read, I'm not yet privy enough to know um, how those interactions ultimately can occur together. But the best way that I view it is that typically when mTOR is stimulated, it is usually on average only stimulated for about, you know, maybe two hours to three yeah. hours. You do not want to stimulate it continuously. That is bad news. That would be bad, right? And there are some types of cancers where we really yeah, want to avoid having these large, you know, continually spiked, you know, elevations of mTOR, which is where autophagy and fasting really can play a role with helping some cells to, you know, continue to complete their life cycle um, or aid and protect, you know, our body uh, in, in a different way. Yeah, let me just add that the myostatin, for those who don't know what it is, is, a, is quite simply a negative regulator of muscle growth. So that when you have high levels of myostatin, your ability to put on extra muscle is inhibited. So if, if right. you lower myostatin, you can improve your muscle mass. Yeah, and, th and think about why evolutionarily this would be there. If we we're always building muscle, we'd get pretty heavy and we'd generate lots of heat and there'd be a lot of energy that would be used to just move from you know one side of the forest to the other side of the forest. So in periods of starvation, it makes sense that we have you know a way to regulate how much muscle mass we can put on and obviously better ways to preserve muscle mass because when we are intermittently fasting and we do see improvements in autophagy, we also see that muscle wasting can be uh, can be lowered. You know, we can reduce some atrophy, but there is a point in time where if calories are restricted for too long and mm -hmm. we're starving now, then it's a different story. So fasting and starving are two different things. They're yeah, yeah. It's a fine balance. Yes. I, I'm yeah. curious though, because this is the devil's in the details and you alluded earlier to the plateau or uh, I guess uh, did, uh, if there's another term for it, but the attenuation of the response mm -hmm. to BFR with time. And if, as if someone is in the field deploying this method on a regular basis, I'm wondering what recommendations you have to compensate for that uh, attenuation of response and how do you change the exercise to continue the improvement? So generally speaking, when most people, um, I, when I introduce people to blood flow restriction, um, I will be applying the pressure uh, based off of a measurement uh, which is known as limb occlusion pressure. It is the same as arterial occlusion pressure, and all of us know it as systolic blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So if I assess your systolic blood pressure, that number we use in medicine to calculate as 100% of the external pressure needed to block off major blood flow to the limb. Not micro, but major blood flow. So we go from that number and then we'll pick a percentage of where to start you with because at lower percentages, we still see some benefits, but they're not as risky to use. 
Um, they're not as painful and intolerant to use, and that allows us to have a starting point. So for the upper extremities, we generally start people at 40% of that systolic blood pressure. And for the lower limb, we start them at about 60% of that because it's a larger limb and it generally needs a little bit more pressure. Now, when we do that, we can then start off with some very basic body weight exercises that you would generally see in any rehab or you know beginning of a fitness program. Where you pick the weight at first is important because although you're using very light loads, there is still an increase in the amount of muscle damage that can happen with BFR regardless of light loads if we do too much the first go around. So what we've learned now is that the first time people do BFR, it generally will have some pain during and they'll have some delayed onset muscle soreness afterwards. So ways to mitigate that are to start off with cardiovascular exercises first, like walking or riding a bike at lower intensities, or to pick exercises that are um, compound in nature. And that is a bit counterintuitive. A lot of times we think that an open chain exercise, uh, like a straight leg raise, laying on your back and lifting your leg up, wouldn't be as stressful as performing a squat. But the reality is that with BFR, open chain exercises actually have a higher increase in motor unit recruitment. So a straight leg raise with BFR is much more difficult to do and can create a little bit more damage than if you did a compound exercise like a squat where there's many more muscles that can assist with the motion. So not all the stress is being taken and, up. And by just to one. clarify, I don't want the people listening to this to be confused. The damage isn't necessarily dangerous. It's actually no. required to yeah. get improvement. So it's, it's not yeah. a bad thing unless it's done no. ex excessively. Yeah, all exercise will have uh, some micro damage that occurs to the muscle. And to a degree, most of us have all known that you break a little, you build a little. It's a give and take game. With BFR, if we approach it in a correct level, do some cardio stuff first, where we pick some exercises where we don't work to failure, where we're just gonna perform maybe via the literature, four sets that are non-failing, and that could vary. The repetitions can be 15, 15, 15, 15. If the repetitions, if the person is a little more able-bodied, we may say 30, 15, 15, 15, with that first set really being the one that drives the hypoxia higher. Mm -hmm. By driving oxygen lower so those next three become like our what's, the, sets. what's the rest between each set typically via the literature it's been 30 seconds and the reason why that was picked was because at 30 seconds more participants were able to complete the rest of the exercise if you took a minute most people would be like i can't it, it's, it's a minute of hanging around and it's so much hydrogen well the reason i constantly recommends 15 seconds at least on the upper arms on the extra extremities on yeah. the lower arms is 30. Yeah, you can do 15 seconds. Uh, I mean, they've tested 15, 30, a minute, two minutes. And what they saw was just a sweet spot in the amount of responders that had the least amount of pain at 30 seconds. Okay. So that's why the 30, okay. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't just randomly picked. They just they, they really said, you know, let's look at a lot of different variables. Let's look at a lot of different pressures for the upper and lower. And what we kind of came to a conclusion was if we just picked one number, the number was very different for a lot of people because all of us have different amounts of muscle mass all of us have different levels of systolic blood pressure so to make it relative we just measure systolic blood pressure as a hundred and then we go down by a percentages so that everyone is relatively at the same pressure um, and that way it's much easier to, to get involved you know to get it started 
Um, it's you feel better when you do it. There's not as much discomfort when you do it. Um, and for a lot of, again, people that I work with that are in pain, uh, it's helpful to not, you know, crush them, so to speak, you know, their first couple sessions, but to give them an introduction. So you kind of let them build up some tolerance uh, and some familiarity with, you know, what this feels like. Cause everybody at first says, Oh, feels like you, you tested my blood pressure. Great. Now we're going to work exercise with it. And it's like, I'm going to exercise with this. Is, is that, is that okay? And typically after the first two or three exercises, you know, they're working hard. Um, but generally for pain, uh, the majority of my patients will say, I feel so much better now. I don't have as much pain. In fact, I actually feel a little bit more mental clarity after I did all of that. Um, that's, another, that's another lactate benefit because it increases right. CDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic yeah. yeah, and, and it's, a, it's acute. It's a small little you know, bump, but mind you, a lot of what we know about behavior, a lot of what we know about how we address things like anxiety and fear come from these small you know, exposures uh, to, you know, to changes in our perception, right? And like with anything, exercise and exercise with BFR, they modulate our perception of threat and they can help with pain tremendously. So I start all people on a low level, right? If we went by the literature, 30 reps, 30 second rest, 15 reps, 30 second rest, 15 reps, 30 second rest, 15 reps, and then we deflate. Now the reason why we deflate in, in the US versus with Katsu uh, is because of continual inflation, what we tend to find increases more shear resistance. It increases a lot of stress to the arteries. And it really takes a small amount of pressure to do that. Like really 30 to 60 okay. millimeters of mercury is all it takes. So we do it carefully so that we allow for the cardiovascular system to reacclimate itself to homeostasis, to baseline. Because mind you, when you perform exercise, any type, including BFR, there is a small elevation in systolic blood pressure because of the resistance that the muscle and now the muscle and the tourniquet have against the heart beating against it. So that anterograde resistance that's been increased, we want to give you an experience afterwards to allow things to come back to homeostasis so there's not continual stress to the heart. Now, given though, we do know that if we do the exercise at a lower intensity, like walking or cycling for 5, 10, up to 20 minutes, there actually seems to be a benefit to the cardiovascular system. Um, with less stress, but exercise and walking on a treadmill with BFR are two very different things. Yeah. But I, I think this is a good point to go in at a pretty significant controversy because, as I mentioned earlier, there's Katsu and Katsu equipment, and then the, there's the type of equipment you're using. They're quite different, actually, even though they yes. perform similar functions. Correct. The Katsu is a thinner band, and it actually has a very sophisticated inflatable band in there that does not does not obstruct blood pressure. I mean, it can if it was done on the arms at a very high level, but typically it doesn't. And, it, and here's the key. I think the really key differential is that the band, the katsu bands are elastic. They stretch so that when you're exercising, there's this subtle back and forth flow even in the venous return so that it's not completely obstructed like it typically is. Now, now with your system, the surgical tourniquets, which were never approved for blood flow restriction training, they were only approved for surgical tourniquets and they're used for that. They're sort of modified, but they never went through formal FDA approach, pr approval for that. So the, I, I can tell you pretty confidently because I've carefully dialogued with all the leaders in the Katsu movement that people have brought to this country, and they are very, very opposed to what you guys are doing. They, they couldn't be more strongly opposed to using a, a, a static, non-elastic band and improving that. 
And it occurred to me as you were describing your, your protocol that maybe that's one of the ways you're compensating for their concern. Their concern primarily is twofold. One is that you're going to increase the risk of blood clots. And then two is that you will have potentially have a hypertensive crisis because there's no question, just conventional strength training, you get a hypertensive response, but it seems mm -hmm. to be accelerated even with blood flow restriction training. But, uh, but the katsu bands, because they're elastic, doesn't seem to cause that. So I'm wondering if you can address, this is a, ma a major controversy between katsu and the physical therapy community between the two systems. So for one, uh, static tourniquets or surgical tourniquets have had a good amount of research uh, invested in them for decades now. And no, 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 no. Let's go back. It can't be. It's less than a decade. They just started in 2010. Katsu started for, for, for BFR. Right. For 1960. Yeah. yeah, they have for, right, for surgery, but that's not for BFR. So the, 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 the clinical experience in, in the literature is less than 10 years old, where Katsu is over 50 years. So with BFR, with exercise, uh, thus far, we've not seen any increases in, uh, in a clot formation or a DBT. Uh, they, we have, you have studies for that? So there are studies that look at rates. Of people? Because I'd, I'd love to see that. Yeah, so there are studies that look at formations of TPA, uh, which is a clot-busting enzyme uh, that has been viewed with BFR and comparative to high-intensity exercise. Um, and that has shown that essentially even using a static system, now mind you, the ones that are used in the military are attached to a computer. Uh, so those systems actually regulate the pressure. Pressures go up and pressures go down. So we're in the exercise? Yeah. So as you contract against it, wow. it bumps air. As you relax, it pumps air back up. Um, so in the U.S., uh, the only company that does that is Delphi. Um, and in it's Europe, like, it's almost like EECP. There, are they putting an electrode on the chest to monitor your EKG and, and sync it with your actual heart heart movement or heart so the, so, so the device itself is essentially using the change in pneumatic pressure on the hose, right? As your as basically okay. your arm or your leg is pumping right against uh, the actual tourniquet that change in air pressure is being read by the computer and then the computer is algorithmically adjusting the pressure as you exercise. So they do have uh, another system in Europe that's called MADUP uh, that does the same thing. Uh, but predominantly a lot of the tourniquets that are used now in, in general treatment, um, these are, these are tourniquets that essentially are, um, uh, they're round bladders that do give when you contract against them but they're not elastic. So it's not a, it's not a hard cast, um, you know, type, type bladder. It's, it still has give to it. So as you contract against it, uh, the pressures will go up and as you relax, the pressures go back down. So, so you're never an element of elasticity. There is. Yeah. It's, Which is it's different than the, the other surgical tourniquets. Well, it's, it's different than a, a tourniquet in, in, in the, in the means of like an emergency tourniquet. And that's where Katsu is right. You know, and that's where we wouldn't want to use an emergency tourniquet uh, which is essentially used for austere environments. Uh, usually they're made of canvas. Uh, well, well, or, let's, or let's take a tangent here and, and warn people about the dangers of doing that because this yeah. is an important caution. I'd like you yeah. to elaborate on it. Yeah, so at this point, it's pretty well recognized in just about all the literature uh, and as well, the top experts in blood flow restriction really do, they, they, they've put out a positional paper just recently that has said, we do not want to be using austere tourniquets. So, um, you know, if you went on Amazon and you typed up blood flow restriction, 
you're going to find uh, EMT, emergency medical tourniquets that are <laughs> that are like, a, you know, less than an inch thin to apply. There's some companies that sell mattress straps as blood flow restriction tourniquets, believe it or not. Um, and then you also have a lot of companies that are selling elastic knee wraps, but the same issue applies because once you take it to a high enough level, its elasticity is gone and now it again is acting as just a, a standard hard uh, hard cast uh, type tourniquet. And that can be very dangerous. That can have a potential chance of uh, increasing a clot formation. Uh, it, it will bruise you. Um, and, and kind of probably the biggest risk with all tourniquets, regardless of any type, is that at any high pressure, you can begin to put damage onto the nerve, especially if you're putting it over an area where nerves are more exposed, like here on the forearm or just below the knee where we have access to the fibular head where the fibular nerve is located. And if you have too much pressure on a nerve, the fat that surrounds and coats our nerves called myelin can become thinned and can become separated, which would eventually lead to a, right, a nerve-based injury. So and, and in large part, we find that a lot of the cases of people that come in after gunshot wounds, after stab injuries or other, you know, other traumatic injuries to a limb that have these emergency tourniquets that are hard cast placed around them, a lot of the nerve issues they have after it are usually a result of the tourniquet itself being at very high pressure. But that's the role that those tourniquets play. It's life or it's limb. Or life. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's life or limb. So you can bleed out in a minute or two if you hit, a, you know, if you hit an artery. So uh, it's life or limb. That's why those tourniquets are used exclusively for those environments. What we use in clinical care and in exercise are tourniquets that are very much in the same nature. They give, uh, they are meant to, yes, uh, restrict venous flow. They're meant to attempt to reduce arterial flow, but you have to understand that microcirculation is always occurring. Um, and so the, the it's, unless it's a tourniquet, unless there's a tourniquet, right? Unless we're using yeah, something like, like a, and that's why they're called uh, BFR cuffs. They, they try to differentiate, I still call them tourniquets because it's just hard for me to get out of my head. But because you're creating more confusion. Sorry, so tourniquets are dangerous. Is the, is the message? Yeah, yeah. Blood flow restriction cuffs are safe to use. Um, uh, yeah, tourniquets, austere tourniquets. That's not a tool to be using with this. Don't apply it to yourself. Uh, don't apply it to anybody if you're training them. That's uh, just just curious. My guess is, and you probably have experience with this, that mm -hmm. those patients who came in and their life was saved because of a tourniquet and developed this nerve palsy, is that something that could be improved with BFR training? Um, you know, there's never been anybody to look into that. I mean, I've had some, some cases of, uh, of some acute drop foot mm -hmm. um, that have uh, gotten better and where we mixed in BFR, uh, but near towards the end of their care because it was kind of a lot of you know, physician was very concerned, you know, that nerve needs blood flow and you're going to starve the leg of some blood. <laughs> but it was like, well, it was, it was one of these where it's like, well, if we, if we don't have enough, you know, uh, strenuous activity, we're, we're, we're going to basically be limiting on some of the stimuli that's needed to develop more of these actual, you know, small vascular, uh, you know, to improve a microcirculation. So it's, it's one of these give and takes. If we ever looked at exercise, by itself in an acute window right after the exercise event we would go my gosh this exercise look at all this stuff that it's done how can this be beneficial but you give it time for the body to start its its normal process of adaptation and its process of cellular regeneration requiring 
some of those inflammatory signals to aid in tissue regeneration, um, some of those signals to aid in shutting things off like myostatin, um, and as well hypoxia, very important one, aiding in helping to increase uh, capillary growth. Then it's it's a different picture. You know, it's, it's a whole different uh, understanding of how the body and stress. Yeah. And the capillary uh, you know, growth, for those who don't understand, is is really what we're calling microcirculation. The the right. arterioles that precede the capillaries and the venules afterwards. That's the whole microcirculation. That's that's where the oxygen diffusion and the uh, the elimination of carbon dioxide and other waste products occurs, which is mm -hmm. vitally important. That's yes. what decreases the older you get, and that is the yes. huge huge, unbelievably magnificent benefit and one of the primary benefits in my belief system mm -hmm. that BFR provides is this yeah. radical increase in VEGF through hypoxic, uh, through the hypoxia um, factor and increases yeah. microcirculation, not only in the muscles and the statalized stem cells, but also in your brain and in your heart where you need it so much so they use this for cardiac rehab in Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's here in the U S there's already been some cases that have uh, post heart attack that have used BFR specifically to aid in the heart. Uh, well, first to aid the rest of the body mm -hmm. uh, to maintain a normal amount of blood pressure, uh, but also to help the heart, which can at that time use lactate as a form of energy during a, a cardiovascular, what we call uh, ischemia or reperfusion injury. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have the clot, that's the ischemia, no blood to the heart, that generally is responsible for about 20 to 30% of the damage we see of the heart. Or the brain in stroke. Correct. But once, once that clot leaves and all that blood flow comes back, we call that reperfusion, that's more responsible for the damage that happens to those tissues. And at that time, those tissues will preferentially use lactate as a form of energy uh, because it is less, um, uh, it's less stressful for that part of the tissue to use. That's designed to use that. So, post cardio, uh, post myocardial infarction, has been some cases now that we're, we've actually applied BFR um, in them uh, with no adverse event, uh, adverse events. Uh, the same with partial spinal cord lesion. Go ahead. Do you find it more important acutely or chronically? So, or both? I would imagine yeah. be both. Probably both. Yeah, probably both. On, on the front end, uh, to aid the heart in. Uh, so, for one. When we apply these BFR cuffs, we reduce the amount of blood returning back to the heart. And that reduces something called stroke volume. And stroke volume um, is the amount of blood re-entering the heart to be pumped out next. So stroke volume makes up one of the factors that uh, allow us to understand something called cardiac output with heart rate being the other factor. So stroke volume times heart rate equals cardiac output. So we would imagine that when we put these cuffs on and we reduce blood flow, reduce stroke volume, that heart rate goes up to maintain cardiac output. Well, after a cardiac event, we essentially want the heart to work. It's a muscle. We want it to essentially get a little stronger, uh, but we don't want it to have to pump so much blood that it's put underneath more stress. So it's thought also that the tourniquets can reduce some of the stroke volume, hence reducing some of the actual stress volume that the heart has to stretch out to, but the heart will have an elevation in heart rate that can actually help the heart to recover after the event, plus the benefit of the lactic acid acting as an, as an energy for the heart to use during this period of time. Chronically though, we're likely gonna see the benefits due to that same mechanism of reducing uh, stroke volume, increasing heart rate, but then as well on the other end, down in the muscles, by improving the vascular network, which helps to 
have better oxygen diffusion, better removal of waste products. Um, and ultimately what it shows in elderly individuals that apply it is that then they also get additional benefits of increased strength and increased muscle size, uh, which means that just putting on these cuffs and walking on a treadmill for about you know, uh, maybe 10 minutes up to 20 minutes a day, and that can be broken down in the literature to two sets of five or four sets of five or two sets of 10, that this, uh, when done over four to five days a week, in a four-week period of time, which is, that's a month, has very positive uh, benefits for strength, size, cardiovascular function, uh, blood flow into the actual limbs, um, and more importantly, at helping to improve what we call um, measures of frailty. That means reductions in your risk of falling, um, yeah, uh, which comes from a lot of other tests, but uh, it's indicated now that we start looking at blood flow restriction for the aging community to have those positive benefits. And all of those positive benefits come by means of reducing sarcopenia, which is the normal age-related loss of muscle, and as well reducing osteopenia, which is the, albeit not necessarily normal age-related loss of bone, but a drop in bone significant um, uh, that can lead to other you know, issues down the road like osteoporosis. Uh, but it's still reversible. So there's a lot of things we can still do at that point in time. Um, and yeah. All right. Well, let's, you talked about using the bands during normal daily activities like walking or even being on a treadmill and, and even competitive athletes could use it in their preferred right. sport, whether you're a golf yeah. or tennis, as long as you're within the restriction, restriction parameters. But mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can review with us your protocol for using it to build strength with free weights. Uh, so typically, and we didn't really discuss this, but the, the, to receive these similar types of benefits with conventional strength training or what's called high intensity strength training, at least according to the American College of Sports Medicine, you're gonna need be somewhere between 70 and 85% of your one rep max. That is the most amount of weight you can lift only once. Mm -hmm. uh, with BFR, it's typically 20 to 40%. So I'm wondering if you can really help us understand your, the protocol your, your community is recommending for starting and progressing with the weights. Right. So more importantly, it's, uh, we have to just identify that those recommendations for the American College of Sports Medicine are, are quite well researched. Mm -hmm. And uh, their improvements far exceed our understanding of just moving something heavy. They really right. mean that when we train at those intensities, uh, there's a lot of changes that happen to the tissue integrity of our body, and essentially our body itself gets stronger at resisting those weights we use commonly. When we're not able to use those weights, um, using blood flow restriction can help to really set up a foundation to allow us to eventually progress back to them. So uh, when we're thinking about blood flow restriction, we can use weights that are as light as about 20% of your one rep max or you would report as maybe being a, a two out of 10 in difficulty, where a 10 is only something that you might be able to do one time. And a two is something that is relatively easy that you might be able to perform for maybe about you know, 30, 40 times. Um, so when, if you're reporting those levels to be very low, because it's hard to get a percentage of a one rep max on a lot of different exercises, right, but right, right. We would say if it's a two out of 10, that's the starting point. And we would want to progress upwards until we're at about a four out of 10. 
Now that progression is necessary. Like with any exercise, we don't want to be training at a weight that's the same all the time because eventually we will accommodate and we plateau. Um, so we want to kind of set forth a plan ahead of us where we start at about maybe body weight and we get used to what BFR feels like for about a week. We may maybe do this, you know, three or four times that week and we'll mix it in where we have some exercises that are closed chain like squats, some exercises that are open chain like knee extension, hamstring curls, and then throwing in some cardiovascular exercise, walking, riding a bike, five to 10 minutes. By the time we get to week two, we wanna to try to start scaling that weight up so that we're able to now, we have an, an acclimation period, we've gotten used to it. Uh, what, we, what it shows is also that your body becomes more metabolically resistant to some of the metabolic stress because we have that mechanical stress and metabolic stress before as high metabolic stress, but your body will accommodate to it because of an increase in something called reactive oxygen species or heat shock proteins. Um, and as we kind of set the, the groundwork, week two, we can start to approach something called an acclimation period. That means now we're starting to approach this 20% of a one RM and we want to avoid in this second week failure. Meaning if we're going to do those four sets, if we're unable to complete the first round of 30, that's okay. But the next three, we want to make sure that we're not going to fail, like fail hard where we're shaking and we can't even complete the rep. We don't want to do that just yet because at that week, if we start pushing failure, it's up to you, but you'll get really sore. Mm -hmm. uh, and some people who are very well trained, this feels great for them. I have uh, the professional athletes, they want to hit it hard and they want to hit it hard fast. So I think it's, it's also up to you. Okay, if you're accommodated, you've got a good training experience underneath your belt, you know what delayed onset muscle soreness feels like, and you also know what things to do about it. You know how to stay hydrated, you know how to get protein in, you know about carbohydrates, sleep, you know, other foods uh, that, are, that can help and reduce inflammation. Near infrared light works like magic too. Right, if you've got a lot of things in your wheelhouse, week two, you can start approaching that. But if not, uh, wait until you get to week three, that's here what we call the cumulative period. At that point, we're going to really start working on going to, towards a higher weight, maybe 25% of a one rep max, or we stay at 20, but we're now starting to hit failure. And failure is really important when it comes to understanding how muscles grow because failure allows us to also increase in strength. That's the key. If we're not failing with BFR, we're actually not increasing in much strength. And a lot of that has to do with what defines neuromuscular strength. So in a really simple understanding, uh, your body will activate those very small motor units of those slow twitch muscle fibers first, and then it will exponentially go up in scale to the larger motor units that have access to more muscle fibers of which are mixed with these type two high force producing muscle fibers. So we don't just jump from small to big, we always go up in this scale, and that's known as a Henneman size principle. So as we go up, we then have access to more muscle that we can contract. And when our brain senses that, that's part of that neuromuscular strength adaptation we see first occur. So at, failure is really important with BFR because when we fail or shy of failure, maybe by two or three reps, we are now in a world of what we call stimulating repetitions that are stimulating for maximal growth, but also maximal strength adaptations at that weight level. And we don't want to be underneath the cuff pressure for so long because what will end up happening is that 
the amount of weight that we can use, the longer exposure we are, the weight starts to drop. So we want to, as we kind of start to approach towards that cumulative period, we want to really start looking at increasing the, the, the failure or increasing the weight to help us get failure faster so that we're not underneath the cuff pressure for too long. Hence, we're able to really top out on those muscle fibers that we can use at that weight. Now, once we get to that 40% of that 1RM, we can start to now pull back on some VFR and start to expose ourselves to some heavier loads because the reality is that your body is adapting. Your bones without are- Without heavier loads without VFR, you're saying? Uh, heavier loads without VFR, right. And then we can start mixing things in, right? We call it the 80-20 rule, where in the beginning, 80% of the workload is going to be through BFR, and 20% of the workload is not. Now, that 20% of the workload that's not really should work on things like isometrics, where there's not a lot of movement occurring at the joint, there's less muscle damage, but those isometrics are really beneficial for helping the bones and the tendons to start catching up. Because again, remember, with BFR, the loads are lower, and you are increasing in muscle neuromuscular strength but your tendon doesn't ad adapt the same way at all. Your tendons only adapt to pure mechanical stress. Mm. So even if the muscle's contracting really hard, the tendon still has a lot more that it can tolerate. So we wanna be smart about this and say, all right, well, tendon, we're gonna get you through some isometric contractions because tendons respond to any type of maximal contraction. It's whatever you can tolerate. We used to think it was only eccentrics, but that, that's kind of been thrown out the window. We now know that isometrics are just as good, and in my experience, they're much more tolerable. So you can go into a leg press, lock the leg press at a certain angle, and just push. Push as hard as you can. Nothing's going to move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that amount of tension in that tendon, that's enough to increase that mechanotransduction, like we said earlier in the muscle. But that's enough to increase the mechanotransduction at the level of the tendon, and that will help the tendon to start uptaking collagen and get thicker so it's able to keep up with the muscle and as well the bone then to keep up with the pulling on it. When we but start getting – go that ahead. Was one of my, that was one of my questions too. Can you do the isometrics with BFR? You, you could for sure, and there could be some – we don't know yet, right? There can be some maybe potential other benefits there. The isometric can really help to get that tendon and that bone stimulated and the BFR is then helping on the other end to increase what we call that peripheral fatigue. That's the fatigue felt in the limbs as a result of lactic acid, hydrogen ion. That plays a role with that Henneman size principle to get more muscle to fire. So there may be some additional benefits with doing it and isometrics. Um, but we're not, we're not there yet. There's, there's still some things to look into on that end of it. Um, but that I like I like it for shoulder raises or shoulder shoulder. Oh, they're great! Yeah, I mean, as as we all get older, that rotator cuff, um, you know, it really requires us to have uh, continual strength on it because you know most rotator cuffs, they don't just age from one side or the other, right? We have the bursal side, which is the outside, and then we have the articular side, which is the inside of that rotator cuff. And as we get, when we're young, we kind of wear it out on the bursal side, just banging up against the acromion. As we get older, though, we wear it away at the actual articular side. So if we can have exercises that are safe, you know, standing in a doorway, just pushing your arms out as hard as you possibly can, that's already making huge impacts to help that tendon stay thick, robust, and strong so that we don't have to face some of the, you know, on average age-related changes to rotator cuffs, which on average... 
Most people in their 80s typically have small tears in them. Not everybody has pain, though. We understand that, you know, just because you have a tear in your rotator cuff, which can sometimes be very, very little and increase a whole lot of pain, sometimes you can have larger tears and really have no pain because they're they're occurring on different sides of that tendon, not 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 the the one that have, we're typically most. Have, have you found BFR useful for rotator cuff injuries? So I, I think because the area is so proximal to the body. Mm -hmm. um, some of the benefits that would be seen require us to work to failure because mm -hmm. as we work to failure, the body will begin to stiffen more proximally to, to basically support more stability. So if I was to do a bicep curl with BFR and then a, or a bicep tricep combo where I've got 30 reps, 30 reps, 15, 15, and then I deflate, Oh man, my bicep and my tricep, they're smoked. And both those tendons help and support my arm as I go up into flexion. But now that they're smoked and my form is also smoked from gripping, now my rotator cuff is going to have to work even harder if I challenge it with maybe a bells up kettlebell shoulder press. Now it's more unstable. And the accessory muscles now, they can't contribute to as much help anymore because they're already fatigued. So I think there's strategies we can use to get at the rotator cuff um, probably more importantly is acute rotator cuff tears or post-operative rotator cuff because at that point we do know that there are additional benefits to the role of lactate. We hinted on it earlier. Lactate increases growth hormone mm -hmm. and growth hormone increases collagen and any tendon that is in a period of healing requires collagen. So can we potentially see some benefits in the rotator cuff by doing leg press or squats with BFR to a high level? to increase the amount of lactate, to increase growth hormone, to increase collagen synthesis systemically? The answer to that is probably yes, but we need more research to fully validate it. But at this point, for all of my rotator cuff patients that come in, I have them work their legs out pretty hard, make sure that they're eating an appropriate amount of protein. With, with the legs worked out hard with BFR? With BFR, yeah, because mind you, it, it their rotator cuff is hurt. I can't put a barbell on their back. I can't yeah. put a harness on them. So I'm going to have them work in a in an environment that very quickly can get a lot of this. Speak to that because that's a, there's a lot of confusion on this, uh, and it's not obvious or intuitive, intuitive that you would have, it would appear that you're only obtaining benefits in the in the muscles that are restricted and it's hypoxic. But that's not true. There's a systemic no. cross training uh, effect. And why don't you address that? There is, right. So we've, we've established for uh, a good while that there are systemic benefits to exercise. Um, you know, a good PT, a good physical therapist worth their salt knows this and is going to basically use other exercises to help and create that anabolic environment in the body, which is systemic because these are hormones, right? Including IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor, which does aid directly in tissue regeneration. So if we make some dietary, you know, uh, changes, uh, adequate vitamin C, adequate supply of protein, and then we also have the external stimuli of exercising at a higher intensity to promote this increase of growth hormone. And mind you, how it occurs is that when we exercise vigorously, all this lactic acid that we mentioned crosses the blood-brain barrier and supplies the brain with energy, also stimulates the anterior pituitary as a means of protection to then begin its process of manufacturing growth hormone. And when it makes its way to the liver, it can then synthesize collagen and synthesize IGF-1, two main characteristic, um, uh, let's, let's call them 
um, uh, byproducts, right, of, of, of this stressful environment that directly aid with initiating the healing factor, right, and then supplying uh, some actual structural integrity to the tissue. That's not just scar tissue. You know, scar tissue gets a bad rap, but, you know, collagen and scar tissue do, they, they tend to work together. Um, but uh, in, certain, in certain situations, we would more prefer collagen than scar tissue, right? Um, typically. Well, typically. I, I want to go back to the training because uh, mm-hmm. you did an excellent job of describing the progression for someone who's just new to this. And I'd, li- mm-hmm. I'd like you to continue that progression now because ultimately you're going to reach a plateau and, yeah. and you're just not going to increase the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering if you could basically finish that sequence and how you would do it and what, what characteristics you would look for or qualities uh, in your program and where, where do you think the plateau ultimately is and what's your final goal? And then and, and how do you, do, do you introduce more different types of exercise and introduce an increased variety, muscle confusion? I mean, how do you keep it, you know, keeping keeping it good for the long term so i think the long-term approach again goes back to this kind of 80 20 rule where we respect that bones and tendons respond at different intensities typically higher okay Um, and muscle and cardiovascular typically respond to a mix of intensities uh, but generally can be seen even beneficial at low Uh, so as we make this progression Right, going from 80% BFR, 20% isometric high load, you know, exercises. And we make that transition to now 20% coming from BFR, 80% coming from higher intensity exercises. That 20% of BFR that's still left can be done to continually help and support cardiovascular function. So using it to walk on a treadmill after we do some weight training can be beneficial with additional loss of fat, right? Because now we are in a higher uh, higher state of fat burning from the weight training itself, and it can continually support that in a loss-low environment with additional benefits cardiovascularly. Um, it can also then be used in higher intensities. So I could maybe say, you know what, I'm going to switch up um, from just walking on a treadmill and riding on a bike to a higher intensity uh, riding on a bike. So I'm going to start doing some faster motions on the bike with some resistance, and I'm maybe only going to do like two to five minute rounds of that. And I might do eight to 10 rounds of that. And that can make up now a high intensity training day that is less impact to the joint, but way more beneficial to stimulating, right? Muscle growth, strength adaptation, cardiovascular uh, health with 80% now, you know, coming from higher intensity training, which again, it just depends on the level of the athlete, depends on the familiarity. Uh, There's a lot of ways to get benefits that aren't just, well, let me refine my question because sure. your 80 20 response is somewhat confusing in my perspective unless you're treating an athlete or someone your age who does not have a problem with their microcirculation but by the time you get to be 60 that's an issue for virtually everyone and by the time it's 80 it's almost guaranteed mm-hmm. uh, so i'm wondering if you would revise that that's 20 percent of the total exercises bfr seems to me quite low and i think it might still be like 60 40 or maybe even higher because and this is where I might be. That's a good point. But I think, I think mm-hmm. the conventional strength training has not been shown to increase microcirculation. Because it, and because of that, even though you're doing that 80% one rep max or 85%, you're not going to get the, stem, the microcirculation to stem cell to cause those benefits. I think the, the notion to think of in that regard is that 
we should have a, a small period of training window where we are increasing the amount of intensity that we do, the weight, the load, um, and or maybe just the cardiovascular intensity uh, to, uh, to essentially access some, some higher levels of either tendon or bone adaptation, which just can still be done with you know, the, the, the isometrics. Um, but I think at that point, we're also going to see some other additional benefits uh, to just cognitive function in that you do need a little bit of a break every now and then from the same kind of routine. And yes. that might be beneficial for, you know, a five to six week window. So it's not like, you know, with BFR, when we first start off, I generally have people start off for about eight weeks, right? And we'll scale up in those eight weeks and then we'll take a small break from it. And then we'll start accessing some other ends that basically have enjoyment for maybe about four to six weeks. And then we'll go right back to where we were on the BFR side. But obviously that 20% is relatively different now. They're a lot stronger. So that 20% is going to be a bit more, uh, a bit higher up. So the benefit of the second go around is that we don't have to go through this acclimation period, slow go. It's, you know, what BFR is you've experienced it before. We're going to start at 20% and 20% is now higher than it was the first time. So now we're going to see some additional strength benefits that are going to start to happen at the level of the muscle. Um, and again, it's, it's a careful balance of picking what is right when we finally go to the heavier side of things um, for additional tendon. Because mind you, when we're doing isometrics, the tendon is getting good, the bone is getting good, but we also want to, we also want to note that those high-resistant exercises with larger ranges of motion can be beneficial to a lot of our synovial joints, specifically the knee. So we do want to have uh, a bit more, a bit more force and larger ranges of motion than just isometrics. But generally speaking, most people will feel better to do it after they've had that foundation of BFR. So it's a lot of kind of cycling through this process, right? Where we're going through, we're hitting our, you know, our, our 80% BFR, 20% isometric high intensity loads. And then we're scaling it back to the, the BFR really starts to look at, um, so either A, it can be used prior to training. That's actually a recent study showed that non-fatiguing BFR uh, can increase and prime the muscle to contract harder so that when you go to lift your heavier loads, you have less pain and you generally can lift more weight. Um, and that could be beneficial in a lot of different ways. Just depends on the goal of the person. Uh, it could also be used after training to help and reduce some muscle damage and there are some protocols that are there. Generally speaking, I don't use those other than with professional athletes because it's more time. Mm -hmm. But the cardiovascular ones are highly beneficial to use even while they're going through that strength training uh, block because it will help them to recover faster. It'll provide their brain with additional nourishment of nutrition so that those, those, that glycogen, that glucose can you know, make it you know, replenish the muscle, replenish what you did. Let's have that brain, right? That metabolic flexibility, preferentially switch over to that lactate for that period of time. Um, that all obviously can lead to uh, feelings of being, you know, less stress, higher recoverability. But again, every person's a little different. And I think you're right. As we approach the aging population, we need more research in how to properly look at the model of BFR as a tool in in longevity we're not there yet at this point uh we do know that it is highly indicated as we get older to start applying it as a really strategic tool to offset osteopenia and sarcopenia but beyond that for optimization right uh for those that are really looking at bending that age curve as much as possible 
I think that's where we still need more research done. Yeah, we need, but there's enough research there to show that it, the evidence. Is oh, for for sure. But I mean, more specifically, no it's unequivocal. You've got to be irrational not to believe that it wouldn't be beneficial. <laughs> that and is true. It really, should be implemented in almost every assisted care facility. I mean, that that is something that needs to be done if we're going to address the morbidity that exists in the elderly. Well, there there are definitely some cases when we do think about things like. Um, uh, when we're thinking about things like shear resistance, um, anterograde resistance, uh, mediated flow dilation, these are characteristics that affect the circulatory system. There definitely are some groups that we need to be more conscientious as to where we start them, but yeah, definitely body weight, you know, I mean, there's right, nothing exactly. more body weight right. <laughs> or well, even there might not be body weight. wrong with even just laying down and just yeah. putting the cuffs on and inflating them. So there's there's been literature that has looked at, um, you know, individuals that are just bedridden mm -hmm. and simply just applying the cuff pressure for five minutes at around sixty to eighty percent of that systolic blood pressure, right? That AOP or LOP, um, done for three to five times is enough to reduce cardiac risk by about 30 or uh, is it 13% each round, uh, reduce the risk to kidneys, improves kidney micro, microfiltration, and obviously reduce the risk of that orthostatic hypotension, which is, a, which is a bigger problem in the event that we need that person to be mobile. And if they keep having these fluctuations in blood pressure, we're never gonna get to anywhere. And then we're really fighting the clock because as that muscle becomes less and less healthy, right, and that BP starts to go up, that cardiovascular stress, that renal stress, uh, stress to the liver, these things now start to really, you know, increase the risk um, and, and decrease life expectancy. So I, I agree with you. I think that's where the automatic tourniquet systems, the ones I was mentioning to you that control that blood pressure as we do it, uh, those seem to make more sense as a tool in those environments because they have safety alarms, they have timers, um, as we step out of that environment, out of the hospital setting and more towards the outpatient setting, we have a little bit more flexibility to use the actual cuffs. Katsu as well would work well in that environment. Um, and then when we make our way even out of that to personal use, I think that's where we need to start finding, um, you know, there are some studies that look at the diameter of the tourniquet and pretty well-known pressures that kind of lock people in at like 60% of that uh, systolic blood pressure based on the circumference of their limb because the size of your limb will determine how much pressure you need ultimately with the other characteristic being systolic blood pressure. But the size of the limb influences it a lot. So we've learned that if I take a measuring tape and measure that limb, um, I can have a better understanding of how much pressure you may need without actually assessing your, your systolic blood pressure. That's, so that's helpful. So it's kind of, as we kind of get do out of typically do that only, or do you use a, a vascular Doppler to determine that? So I, I generally use a mix of tools, right? So I'll use my automatic tourniquet if time is short, um, which generally speaking is a lot. Uh, two, I will use a handheld Doppler. So generally speaking, uh, most companies suggest an eight megahertz handheld Doppler. They're not expensive. Um, and really for healthy people, you only assess it one time every eight weeks, uh, for injured people. We, we like to say we assess them every two weeks. Um, and then with your post operative, we basically assess them every other day because we do have changes in that limb circumference as inflammation, uh, or joint effusion, uh, decreases. So, um, hopefully in the future, you know, there will be some other, other means of measuring, 
you know, this pressure. So we're kind of not guessing as to how much we need. Uh, because again, there are some cases, there are some people that do have, like with anything, uh, they have some circulatory complications uh, that really require a bit more, a bit vascular, more, you know. Vascular insufficiencies. Yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah. We, we need I, to be, I, have you ever used a pulse oximeter to, to guide yeah. your therapy? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think we even mentioned that. Uh, it seems like uh, in the upper extremity, a pulse yeah. ox uh, device you put on your finger measures the amount of uh, uh, basically um, iron bound to hemoglobin. Um, and then we can look at how much oxygen, right, is, is bound, well, bound to that. Um, uh, you can use that for the upper extremity. For the lower extremity, it doesn't yeah, it's work. Not hard. It's, yeah, yeah. So you can put an SpO2 monitor on and you've got your cuff on and you're inflating it and that SpO2 would just go beep, 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 and it's hit zero. All right, That's, that can be used as a measure. But to be honest with you, um, if, you're, if the cuff width of the uh, blood pressure device you can pick up anywhere, is the same width as the BFR cuff you're gonna use, that's the exact same number. So in some cases, you know, some of the other conventional BFR cuffs that are sold here in the US that are the same width as the standard blood pressure cuff width, that systolic blood pressure is your AOP. And then you just you know, use your calculator. What's 40% of that to start and what's 50% of that to progress to? So, um, because we didn't talk about that, pressure can be a means of progression too. You can start low sure. and increase the pressure. Um, but uh, yeah, there's it's becoming more accessible. I think as more demand increases, obviously first people have to be educated, right? They got to know that this is even- Well, well, well let's take talk about that now because I'm so grateful for you sharing your wisdom with us. And mm -hmm. if it's not obvious to everyone, you actually teach this in formal courses. You mm -hmm. go around the country teaching other professionals. So mm -hmm. why don't you discuss how that works and your plans for that, how someone would access that training. And, uh, and then the, what looks like it's coming up is you're going to have online training available right now. It's only in-person training. Mm -hmm. So currently right now, um, the, the, the in-person live workshops are being done through a company called uh, the BFRpros.com. Uh, and it was a company that myself um, and another colleague started. Um, and essentially what it does is it supplies a live workshop uh, for either performance or for rehab. It's a two-day workshop. Um, and uh, it gives you a well-rounded understanding of the scientific literature and the practical approach for working with healthy individuals that are in a mix of different sports. I spent a lot of time writing uh, the programming uh, for, uh, for these different individuals triathlete, your cyclist, your swimmer, uh, powerlifter, bodybuilder, crossfitter. Um, and the rehab side is a, uh, is a very good to the point approach as to how we essentially assess for risks and contraindications post-operatively or post-injury, past medical history risks that can help us to understand how to proceed moving forward. Um, and those are, those are accessed basically via through that website. Now the online stuff is really where things are gonna have better accessibility to people. Um, so um, I'm, I'm likely going to be starting those off probably just through Lifters Clinic, which is my own personal physical therapy clinic. Uh, the reason being to go through that end of it um, is just because it will allow me to have more of a personal kind of touch to where I wanna uh, discuss BFR in a whole gamut of age ranges because 
the conversation really gets down to some nitty gritty sometimes about, you know, how much experience you have in exercise and really what are your goals? Um, and, and the goals is so important, you know, for all of us who, um, uh, to, who have a, a general life uh, and we have a career, uh, are those goals are highly important and exercise is a stress. And for some people, if there's not a goal oriented approach towards exercise, it, it can be a short lived, you know, process and exercise is so vital for all of us. It is, it is the glue that helps to keep us together. Um, and finding a way to get that exercise to match your lifestyle is really what we're learning about now. That, that small level of customizability really can make the world of difference. So, yeah, so, I used to, we used to teach that diet was 80% and exercise was 20, but I'm skeptical of that initial assessment. It might be closer to 60, 40 or even 50, 50. I mean, it really is crucial. I mean, you got You just can't exercise and ignore your diet. Everyone understands that. But I mean, yeah. I think most people underappreciate the value of exercise. If we start really looking at how to build um, that, that education as a starting point for people, it starts off first with this, right? Influencers yeah. such as yourself who yeah. really have access to a lot of people and they, you know, there's a lot of trust. You know, you've built so much trust in your community. Well, you know, I've innovated a lot of different things, like vitamin D and omega three fatty acids. And you know, I was a big part of that, and a lot of other glyphosate awareness. We were instrumental in the whole GMO thing. So this is my next one. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, and and largely as a tribute to my parents because I didn't do it for them, and so I've got to do it for all the other parents out there who need it. Yeah, you know, it's my responsibility. And I feel the same way. So. Yeah, I feel like it. You get gifted with this, uh, this, this level of intuition uh, and this level of uh, just curiosity. Yeah, and yeah. You acquire all this knowledge. Now what? Do you yeah. got to pay it forward. You, you got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, so how do people find your online training? You said that's going to be through your clinic. I mean, how do they access that? So for right now, I am taking on and have been taking on, you know, individual clients as we kind of go and build these things okay. out so that they have a customized plan. So you can access that by just email mario at liftersclinic.com. Uh, okay. And soon that will be a, a online general education workshop that will give you the general understandings. Uh, the store will have cuffs that you can purchase. Uh, and you can fit them to really what you're looking for. And that's, that's a big thing for a lot of people. You know, some of these cuffs are water resistant. I work with swimmers and they actually have some very good protocols for the pool. Um, as well, there's some good protocols for uh, postmenopausal women that have osteopenia that incorporate aquatics into what they do with BFR. Um, so I'm really trying to find a way to kind of work at still at that one-to-one -one level. I think it's important okay. that... Good. Yeah, so right now you can you can email me. We can get to well, work on it and developing you that. Be, you might be disappointed and overwhelmed with the response, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> you might have to change that, but we'll see. Yeah. So uh, you are a wealth of knowledge. I really deeply appreciate you sharing that with our audience and uh, giving them a sense of the potential that this incredible innovation in exercise therapy provides for them. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate it. It is definitely, it's a, it's a privilege to get to share uh, what I've accumulated, you know, through the years of my experience, uh, personal uh, experience as well, research. And I think ultimately it's really, you know, it's going to be people like yourself that's helping to spread the word. The education is the most important thing, right? The more people are aware of it, 
the greater the demand is going to increase. And as that demand increases, more innovation will happen. And as that innovative process increases, accessibility improves because it's not going to be as expensive. And eventually, just like in Japan, you'll be able to walk down the street to a gym. They're going to have some cuffs there for you, sign some safety waivers, get some things set up, and really start making an impact and you know, improving your life. Yeah, this, this, in my mind, there's no greater potential than mm-hmm. be at bar for radically improving the health of the elderly. So I agree. So it's, it's just magnificent. So thanks again. And yes. uh, we'll, uh, I'm sure people will enjoy this. Great. I hope so too. Thank you for having me.